Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, a joint effort from the Massachusetts Law Office Management Assistance Program, Suffolk University Law School's Advanced Legal Studies, the Chicago Bar Association's Law Practice Management and Technology, and the Massachusetts Bar Association. Each month, episodes are presented by nationally known experts on a range of legal marketing topics, including promoting, growing, and marketing your law firm and or practice. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to another episode of Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. In this episode, we've got Jay Harrington, an author and marketing consultant for lawyers, who's going to talk to us about the expertise effect, how getting narrow can grow your practice. Now, if you're anything like me, the problem after lunch is not getting narrow. So let's all stand up at our standing desks and hear what Jay has to say. This is originally recorded as a webinar, so the high-quality audio production that you become accustomed to with other Legal Talk Network podcasts may not be available for this show. However, the information is still just as righteous. If you want to follow along with the slides, please visit the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Show on LegalTalkNetwork.com. The webinar today for uh, spending a few minutes um, talking about what I think is a very important issue, um, and it's kind of the crux of... Um, my um, book that Jared mentioned um, that's just been published, um, and that's uh, niche practices and getting more narrow um, in, a, in a strategic way to grow your practice. Um, and obviously we'll be talking about that today in detail. Um, so I guess though, if I could get across one point uh, in the next 45 minutes, um, I, it would be that I think it's critically important uh, that lawyers act in a more entrepreneurial fashion. And, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, one thing successful ones um, do very well is they think long-term and they think very strategically. Um, they keep their eye on, on the big picture. Um, and I think, you know, the problem or impediment uh, that I see, um, and, and certainly it impacted me when I practiced law, is that, uh, most lawyers, um, understandably, get caught up in the day-to-day -day craziness of the practice of law. Um, and it's, so it's difficult to think strategically about the big picture in that environment. Um, you know, instead of thinking about the big picture, um, we think about, and I say we because again, I, I did this and I still do it in, in running my business now. It's, it's, it's difficult to get out of this trap, but we think about the little picture and we focus on the day to day, um, you know, whatever happens to be in front of us at the moment. Um, you know, if work is slow, uh, what happens? That's when we ramp up business development activity. Um, and then next thing you know, work comes in the door and we start to focus on the work and we tamp down um, activity on the business development front. And so it's really a roller coaster that I think many of us find ourselves on, and it's a difficult one to get off. Um, it's, a, it's much more of a reactive way of working. Um, and the, the ironic thing about this is that, you know, a, our lack of strategy often leads us to spend more time thinking about things like strategy and tactics 
Um, it's because we, we sense something is wrong, we sense something is off, and we should be doing something differently, but we're not quite sure what to do about it. Um, and so as a result, we end up consuming a tremendous amount of professional improvement advice um, in search of answers uh, to, the, to this problem we're facing and that we're, that we're grappling with, but we never get around to implementing it very effectively. And part of this, I think, is because it's difficult to think long term. I've heard various people talk about this, and I think it's pretty apt and pretty accurate. It's, you know, it stems from uh, many of us overestimating what we can get done in a single day, right? So I don't know about you, but oftentimes I'll, I'll prepare a to-do list and I'll have 20 items on it. And which is crazy. It's, it's impossible to think that you can accomplish that much in a single day. Um, but we, we overestimate our ability to do so. But then we underestimate what we can get done in a year, for example. The, the enormity of the task seems too big. And we think, well, there's no way I can transform my practice or um, do something you know, otherwise trans, trans, uh, transformational in just a year. Um, so we underestimate our ability to do so. And so we do stay in that short-term thinking, um, I guess, loop. And um, you know, while we can have a productive day thinking short-term in that fashion, um, you know, with longer-term thinking, we really can transform our life and our practice and our career. So again, what I'm, if, if I have a directive, um, it's to urge you to do something um, and stick with it for you know, say a 12 month period, um, you take action, um, take some risks in developing and building your practice, behave differently in some fashion from what you're doing today um, when it comes to building that practice. Um, and so while there's many things you can do to build a practice, I'm gonna talk about one that I think works particularly well um, based on you know, my study of behavior of lawyers and what works and what doesn't and speaking to people particularly in conjunction with, with writing my book. Um, and I think it works well, um, but it, it may not work for everyone. Um, and that's okay. And I guess what I'd like to get across, though, is just, just do something um, long-term and stick with it. And, and that'll inevitably lead you to do something else, and, and that will help you to grow your practice. So um, with that kind of setup, um, let's get started in more detail. So... Um, again, the, the basic proposition that I'm putting forth is that, you know, in this competitive legal marketplace that you're all competing in, um, you need to offer the marketplace something different. And I think that something different is a narrow, specialized expertise, um, something that um, a client can seek their, sink their teeth into and that there's a real market for. Um, and it's not that being a well-rounded lawyer is a bad thing. Um, certainly a lawyer with a, a deep, with a depth and a breadth to their practice and knowledge is a valuable asset to a client. It, the problem is though that positioning, simply positioning yourself that way um, as someone who provides, for example, full service or someone who possesses general knowledge is often ineffective from a marketing and positioning standpoint. You simply can't be all things to all people. That's because, um, you know, if you observe, observe consumer behavior across all aspects of today's economy, consumers are trending towards specialization. 
and that's uh, that's true. In, in like I said, in, in almost every industry and field. Um, let's take the medical field for example. Um, when you have a cold or the flu, uh, you go and you see your general practitioner, right? You get in a car, you drive over, you might get a prescription or or otherwise get a diagnosis as to um, you know what's what's the problem. But uh, then you drive home and and you deal with the issue. But on the other hand. When you have a, say, a heart blockage or aggressive cancer, you get on a plane and you go seek out the diagnosis and prescribed treatment from the top specialist that you can find. The specialist in this case doesn't seek you out. You get on a plane and go seek them out. So that's really the difference, I think, in a, in a nutshell as to what it means to be a specialist, to be sort of one of the top people in your field. It's that people who consume your services are um, seeking you out. Um, they have a big problem to solve and they wanna find the go-to person for it. So the idea is to try to become the best or nearly the best in a small market. You don't try to compete in a big market. It's the, it's the old adage that um, sometimes it's better to be a big fish in a small pond than a small fish in a big pond. Um, so, of course, the corollary uh, to someone seeking you out um, as the specialist is that you have to try to otherwise convince clients that they need you and then you need to seek them out. And that's a much more difficult thing to do. Um, there's, a, there's a great book. I deal with this quite a bit in my book, but there's another um, great book on this topic that's called um, Small Giants. And it deals with uh, small niche companies that are ultra profitable in different industries. Um, there's a number of examples of this, but um, there's, a, there's a good, easy to understand one about a leather pant maker um, who um, doesn't advertise, doesn't promote the business, but is ultra profitable and sells these leather pants for thousands of dollars. Um, people like Cheryl Crow or Joe Perry of Aerosmith are, um, are uh, customers. And so they dominate this market. It's a very niche, very small, but very profitable market. The, 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 on the flip side, you know, someone could set out to um, make pants, uh, make jeans, and try to compete with Levi Strauss, for example. And that's going to be much more difficult to do. Um, so again, uh, it's the difference between a generalist in a market that's trying to compete in a very broad, very diverse, um, very competitive um, area versus a specialist who pitches, picks a very narrow niche and tries to dominate it. And, um, and really the same principles apply in the legal, legal marketplace. And there's, there's very... Uh, there's very strong reasons and, and very important reasons to um, think specialized and think narrow. Um, lawyers simply can't try to be all things to all people and do things that many do, such as use some of these meaningless adjectives to describe and market themselves via, for example, their website bios. Um, trustworthy, skilled, experienced, loyal. Um, these mean little to clients. Um, they, they, they're used by um, virtually all lawyers and, and they become sort of these meaningless adjectives that, that don't give any flavor as to what you can actually accomplish or what value you provide to the marketplace that you're, um, that you're competing in. They need to offer them, they, so they, lawyers need to offer clients something meaningful in the form of specialized expertise. 
and they need to communicate it in a way that gets that value across. These traditional passive forms of communication, such as traditional advertising, simply aren't working. There's too much noise and static to break through in the marketplace these days um, to simply rely on those traditional forms of communication. And so today, you know, when it comes to business development and positioning yourselves, um, those traditional attributes, um, quality work, technical proficiency, those are really table stakes when it comes to um, competing. You need to acquire the skills necessary to develop and sustain a client base over time. And that's a much different skill set. Um, clients today are looking for specialists. They're not looking for generalists to a great degree. And developing business requires that level of niche expertise. Um, so I, I really think the path to success lies in specialization. And I'll be emphasizing that point um, throughout today's talk. Um, also keep in mind, however, that this is not a, a short, you know, get rich quick scheme strategy. It takes time. This is the long game. And um, it takes a real strategic approach to what you're doing. Um, and, and so we'll get into more detail about that in a moment. Um, I thought I'd kind of begin um, to talk about the importance and, and the benefits of a niche practice um, by, I always think it's better to share a story or an example uh, to make my point rather than just belaboring it um, without um, the benefit of that sort of um, objective example. So um, I, I want to speak about uh, a gentleman by the name of um, Scott Becker, who is a, an accomplished attorney and an accomplished businessman. And he's um, someone who was generous enough to, to spend quite a bit of time speaking with me as I was um, writing my book, um, because I really think he is, he represents a prototype of the type of lawyer who um, I'm describing here in terms of um, developing a niche practice and, and how to market it. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about Scott's story. Um, Scott Becker is a Harvard Law grad. Um, he is the chairman of McGuire Woods Healthcare Practice. Um, and Early on in his career, um, probably as a mid-level, you know, fourth, fifth, um, sixth-year associate, he realized that um, in order to get in control of his life and his career, um, he needed to build a practice. And so he started where I think it wisely started at a, at a good at a good spot. He he began by taking a look around him to see how other lawyers in his firm that he admired and respected and that were successful in their own right um, in, build, in terms of building a practice went about the process. And in doing so, he discovered certain commonalities among them and, and their approach. And he found a mentor who was willing to help, which again is another important point in terms of um, you know, how to go about this process. Um, so his mentor was also a healthcare lawyer, a senior lawyer in the firm. And the advice that he gave Scott was to carve a niche out for himself. Um, and, and that made sense intuitively to Scott. He realized that um, having a niche would mean that he'd be working with clients with similar problems. And as a result, he'd be able to build up his expertise in that area, in that narrow niche that he was developing, and offer it to other clients or potential clients who are similarly, similarly situated. So... He began by experimenting. Um, you know, he, one, of the, one of the things Scott told me was that 
um, and, and that was successful for him was there's never a perfect plan in terms of doing this. You need to experiment to figure out what works. And I think that that makes perfect sense. And, and probably a lot of us have, have, you know, that's borne itself out as, as we've gone through various, um, you know, phases of, of marketing our practices. Um, so Scott realized, though, that as a young lawyer, um, you know, get, achieving expert status, becoming known as like the go-to guy um, in a in a in a in a market in a in an industry, um, and building a practice was was the long game. It was not not going to be easy. Um, and so his advice was, you can't aim straight for the top. Um, it's almost impossible to compete with big firms who are putting huge resources into protecting their biggest clients. But Scott said. There are lots of smaller clients in niche industries that you can pursue. And as you build up your practice and your expertise, then later in your career, you'll be in a position to go after the bigger clients. And, and again, um, I, I like this quote from Scott, you need to hit singles and doubles before you can hit home runs. And, and so what Scott did with the support of his firm, he identified a few different potential niche areas within the healthcare segment. Um, that he believed were underserved, but had potential for someone in his position with his level of expertise and experience at the time, and he began pursuing work. Um, and the principle that he used to, to accomplish this was trying to get it, quote, get in the middle of the industries that you are focused on. Um, so what he did, the tactical steps he took was to create, and this is, remember, this is probably 20 years ago before the internet, you know, was, was a, a tool even in terms of marketing your practice. So he created these print newsletters geared towards each niche and began sending those out and also hosting small industry conferences um, geared towards his potential um, industry niches. And he gained traction with one, which was surgical centers within the, uh, within the healthcare space. And he poured all of his energy into it. And he then, um, you know, pretty soon he, he began to gain traction and build a practice. And um, the, the thing, uh, when he started to become sort of the go-to guy within the surgical, um, the surgical center niche, uh, was that, that sort of built a foundation where once he, once he sort of tackled that narrow niche, all of a sudden, doors of opportunity open with larger potential clients like healthcare systems and hospitals. So he built on his narrow niche and through that process was able to um, develop a, uh, a much broader practice and a much um, bigger uh, book of business as a result. Um, and coincidentally, um, you know, and this is, a, this is an aside, but it's, it's an important one, um, you know, doing what we'll talk about later, which was Scott was one of the early practitioners of content marketing, you know, a buzz word in legal marketing circle these days, um, through his newsletters, that in and of itself became a, a large profitable business for him. Today, um, it's one of Becker's healthcare is his publishing, uh, you know, I hesitate to call it an empire, but it's one of the most widely read and respected um, publishing uh, platforms in the healthcare sector. Um, out there and it's got it, it, it it's all over the web there's a bunch of different newsletters and that's a large business in and of itself and that all stemmed from his original um you know newsletters that he started developing on his own writing and sending out to clients um and so um that's it, it's a pretty remarkable story in that sense um but i guess the uh 
um, one of the takeaways that, that Scott uh, communicated was that, um, uh, you know, in order to pick a niche and stick with it, um, you need to constantly be in front of your audience providing personalized content. And Scott said, most lawyers don't get results quickly enough so that they don't stick with it. And he says, building a practice is a serious job, a full-time job, and you need to treat it as such. Um, so uh, the, uh, the, the point is, um, get narrow, stick with it, provide, um, provide content and, and thought leadership to your audiences, and, and it will help build a practice over time. Um, so that's, I think, a great example of, of the, the um, strategy that I'm going to be talking about further here um, is, is Scott Becker. Um, so let's get into, um, you know, the differences, um, between someone who has a more general practice and someone who has a very specialized practice. And I think that is really, um, the difference between someone who is a jack of all trades and a master craftsman. And, you know, a jack of all trades, if you visualize and if you're viewing this continuum on the screen, um, you'll see that uh, a jack of all trades is someone who's busy. Uh, let's, a jack of all trades lawyer, for example, is someone who's busy, um, but often bouncing from project to project, um, learning a little about a lot. And one of the things about a jack of all trades is that clients think of the jack of all trades when price is a primary consideration. Um, the jack of all trades is often reactive to opportunities. Uh, uh, for example, a client may contact someone in this in this um, position and say suggest that they need a family law lawyer. Um, and because it's an opportunity, the jack of all trades, even though he has little experience in this area, decides to take it on. So he spends a great deal of time and effort getting up to speed on family law issues. Uh, he navigates his way through. Uh, the um, nuances of the law and it completes the engagement um, because he spent so much time it's not particularly profitable but then he sees a further opportunity says I, I'm now I can now do uh, family law so he adds a practice area to his website and he adds an element to his elevator pitch and he now does family law as well as the other elements of his general practice and then an estate planning matter comes in and he takes that on and the process repeats and um, it's difficult to build a practice if that's what you're doing because you're constantly shifting gears and you're never really getting that deep into any particular thing and you're bouncing from thing to thing. So now the master craftsman, on the other hand, is also very busy but focused. Uh, she knows a little about a lot. I'm sorry, a lot about a little, of course, and as a result is able to charge a price premium. Referral sources think of the master craftsman when a particular type of expertise is needed. And so as a result, she's frequently on the short list, if not the only referral made when lawyers are, um, lawyers are recommending someone uh, to a potential client. And she doesn't need to get up to speed on the issues because in most instances, because she's so deeply ingrained in her practice, answering questions and determining a plan of action is largely instinctual. And then importantly, she's also able to validate quickly whether a potential client is the right fit for her practice. 
And so this is critically important and, and perhaps seems paradoxical uh, to some, but the master craftsman turns away far more work than the jack of all trades. Um, but the work she does take on aligns neatly with her experience, expertise, and interests. And so as a result of that, the, the master craftsman is, is oftentimes much more profitable than the jack of all trades lawyer. Because of her past experience, she can quickly determine and, and um, understand how much time a particular matter will take. And that allows her to become more creative in doing things like developing alternative fee arrangements or fixed fees um, for a particular engagement, which oftentimes leads to a more profitable engagement. Um, clients, I think as we all know, they like, they like set numbers. They like to be able to budget and understand what something's going to cost, even if that's a big number. What they don't like, even if it's a lesser number, are timesheets with a bunch of point ones and point twos on them. But if you don't know, if you're a jack of all trades who doesn't know how long something's going to take, you're left with little choice but to bill, you know, on, on an hourly basis. And Oftentimes that leads to one of two things, an upside surprise on a bill for a client or cutting a bill um, deeply uh, to avoid that upside surprise. And neither of, neither of which is a very um, uh, attractive alternative. So um, at the end of the day, um, you know, I think the master craftsman is, a, um, is where we wanna be. Now, most lawyers, I think, um, fall somewhere in the middle of the continuum. Um, and that's, they don't try to be all things to all people or all clients, but they do like to keep their options open. Um, and and that's, that's, you know, understandable, but I think it's the wrong approach. And, and you can see it, for instance, if you look at many website bios, uh, attorney website bios, oftentimes people will list, you know, 10, 12, 15 different practice areas that they, that they have experience in. Um, and that's not the mark of a master craftsman. The, 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 I guess this is driven by, it's driven by a few things, but one is the fear of missing out on opportunities. Um, and that fear comes from what I think is a misguided notion that the more options you present the marketplace, the more opportunities will present themselves to you. Um, and, and, I just don't think that's the case. Um, more, uh, more options does not always equal more opportunities. Um, it's also driven by a desire for variety. I think sometimes people fear like getting in, getting you know too narrow because they're going to do the same thing over and over. I also think that's misguided because um, you know in my experience, the, the more satisfying work is the deeper work, the work that's um, work that's more interesting, is more challenging work. And the master craftsman is the one who, who that work gravitates towards. Um, the one who can, who can get through the, um, you know, the initial analysis of a problem quickly, um, you know, knows the law, understands the issues, kind of has an instinct as to how a matter will play out, and then can really start thinking deeply about things like strategy and tactics and creative solutions to a problem. Um, and that, that to me is where, you know, sort of that um, psychic, uh, you know, satisfaction comes from of, of intellectually challenging matters. And those are the types of matters that um, master craftsmen um, are often called to work upon or work on because um, they have the ability to get through the initial 
sort of minutia of a matter quickly and and cut to the heart of it. Um, th there's a um, you know there's a few there's a few examples of this, um, and I think um, good reading if if you want to um, think about this idea of um, limiting your opportunities. Uh, many of you have probably heard of the book Essentialism by Greg McCune. If you haven't, I highly recommend you pick it up. It's all about um, saying yes to only the most critical and most important and most profitable and beneficial opportunities and saying no to everything else. Um, there's also a great article by a um, kind of a, uh, a quirky but very smart guy by the name of Derek Sivers. Um, his philosophy when it comes to um, making any decisions really, but I think it's, I think it's uh, relevant to um, attorneys in terms of how they're um, filtering opportunities through their practice is um, his principle is it's, it's not a yes or a no, it's, it's a hell yes or no. So it's gotta be a great opportunity. Um, and if it doesn't align with your objectives, then it's a no. Um, so that's kind of, uh, those are kind of some of the ideas that, uh, um, you know, lawyers with, and kind of some of the principles that lawyers with very specialized niche practices think about. Um, saying no more often than saying yes, um, knowing a lot about a little, and um, staying very focused in your practice. Um, and so the next, um, the next slide and the next topic is, okay, you know, you might be saying, I, you know, I kind of get the idea and I kind of, you know, I see the value in niching, but you know, how do I go about the process? Like, what's the right area of specialty for me? And you know, that's a very individual question, obviously. Um, and, and kind of in looking at this, I think that for most people, um, potential areas of expertise to pursue can be identified at the intersection of your interests, your experience, and your mark and and the market opportunities that are out there. So you can start by asking yourself three questions. Um, the first is what type of the first is from other places that like a referral. They're going to be like the big oh, really? people referral place now. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're um, saying it's a new thing. The the first is um, what type of work do I like to do? Um, the second is what type of work am I good at? And then the third, uh, what opportunities exist in the marketplace? So in other words, you know. You can't pick a niche that obviously you know you you don't want to have to try to create a market. Uh, you need to you need to have at least some understanding that people are buying what you'd like to sell. Um, so if you can if you can determine um, you know those three things and find some commonality among them, uh, you'll be in pretty good shape when it comes to carving out a niche. And I, I know this sort of sounds simplistic, and it is in many ways. Um, but what I found is that despite being simplistic, um, many lawyers don't think this way. And, and in thinking about that, um, I think it comes from, in, in, in many ways, the, uh, the way in which lawyers are trained and they kind of come up in law firms or um, whatever, whatever uh, format they're practicing in or environment they're practicing in. Um, if from early on, in most lawyers' careers, their days, and then as a result, their weeks, their months, and their years are dictated by inputs, right? Um, the, they receive assignments from partners. Um, they're reactive to emails and phone calls that they receive. 
And as a result, they never really take the time or learn the skill of prioritizing how they want to spend their day. They never really, they never really try to answer these three questions. And so as a result, they have a difficult time um, or never do kind of carve out a niche for themselves and act strategically. Um, a, a good example of this um, is a former colleague of mine who um, fairly early in his career, he established himself. He was a very smart guy. He was a skilled corporate bankruptcy lawyer. Um, now, that's, of course, what he's good at uh, in this Venn diagram. Um, but that's still a broad and a big pond area of the law. And, you know, while, his, um, while he had knowledge and experience in U.S. bankruptcy law, he always had an interest in different aspects of international law. Um, and that's what really interests him. So his experience was bankruptcy. His interest was international law. And those two things don't necessarily go together. Um, but what he found was that um, there were opportunities to develop expertise in a narrow but, but important area of the law. And that was how the U.S. Bankruptcy Code and the, and the UK pension law intersect and impact each other. So he was able to hone his expertise in this area um, in the you know, early to mid 2000s. And then when 2008 rolled around and the, and the bankruptcy financial crisis struck and the bankruptcy wave hit, he was well positioned for a number of large like niche opportunities and engagements in US bankruptcy cases that involved these international issues. So I think that's a good example of someone who kind of, you know, did this analysis and set himself up for those opportunities down the road um, by, by kind of, you know, doing this three-part analysis. Um, and so I suggest and I, I urge you to, um, to do that as well. Um, another example of this, and, and then here's, here's, I know I mentioned before that, um, you know, sometimes you have to find like an existing market opportunity. Um, there's another good example of this. Um, that's a little bit different, and it might give you a, a, an opportunity to think about things a little bit differently, but um, there's a, uh, a firm and, and two lawyers um, out in San Francisco. It's a small firm. Um, it's called O'Reilly um, O'Reilly and Roach, and um, they're two relatively young lawyers who set off on their own, and they began doing consumer finance litigation. And... Um, they um, had a, you know, a good practice, profitable, um, had clients, getting a lot of referrals from bigger firms, but they kind of stumbled upon this practice area, um, and, and this is kind of the point. It wasn't actually a practice area at the time. They, they stumbled upon this service that certain lawyers needed, which was um, lawyers, they, their clients were lawyers, and lawyers who were departing large law firms um, as partners. And when you depart a large law firm as a partner, that are, you know various legal issues arise. You have to deal with your um, partnership agreement. There's various ethical issues um, that have to be dealt with, and it, it you know, as, as many of you probably know, it, it can be a messy situation. So, they started um, doing some of this work, um, counseling other lawyers on how to um, properly transition from a firm, and also counseling firms on how to deal with departing lawyers. And so um, the point being, they, um, they developed this expertise and then they built their whole firm around what is kind of a, um, an area of law that didn't really exist. Um, so when it comes to um, you know, thinking about a niche for yourself, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, you, know, you, don't, have to, you don't have to think within the existing box of, 
um, what's out there. You don't have to say, oh, I want to, I just want to be a litigator or I want to be a you know, corporate lawyer. Or I want to be a tax lawyer. I want to carve a niche out in that area. O'Reilly, Dan O'Reilly and, and Dina Roach were very entrepreneurial and they actually kind of created a practice area um, and, and built an entire uh, firm's practice around that kind of newly defined practice area for themselves. So they conducted the same analysis, um, but they had to go one extra step was to kind of create a, a practice area and, and brand it as such. And, um, and, and as a result, have, uh, have created a profitable niche for themselves in that area. Um, so that's a, uh, a relatively quick spin through um, um, the, the process of picking a niche and the importance of niching. And I, I want to be conscious of time. So I want to go to the next element of what I want to talk about today, which is, um, sure, you've, you know, you've got a niche and um, you've decided to pursue it. Um, but you know, who cares, right? Um, no one knows about that and, until you're able to still market yourselves. Um, so you still need to get yourself out there. Um, and what I am suggesting uh, is that um, one of the things that um, one of the things that you are uh, you should be doing as an expert is um, writing. Experts write, um, and that's uh, that is really um, important because you know one of the nice things about positioning yourself as an expert in a narrow field is that selling, you know, the traditional form of selling that no one really likes to do is not required. Um, because your audience is smaller, narrower, it can be targeted via content marketing and thought leadership much more effectively. Um, it's how Scott Becker, for example, built his practice. And not only does writing help you promote yourself as an expert, it helps you become one. It requires you to think deeply about the topics that are of interest to you and pertinence to you uh, to your clients. So um, the, the, the methodology, um, one methodology certainly, uh, and tactic to, um, to promote yourself as an expert is to put your thoughts out in the marketplace um, as a, and position yourself as a thought leader. And here's how it works. Um, I say writing is selling because we all have an orbit of people and companies and organizations who sort of encircle us, who orbit us. And content acts as gravity uh, to that, to that um, orbit of, of people and contacts. It keeps people in your orbit. And as a result, those who are aware of you stay aware of you as a result of the content that you're putting out into the marketplace. And those not in your orbit move into it after becoming aware of you as a result of your content. And so when someone who's in your orbit has a problem or an opportunity in an area that you have written on, you'll be high on the person's list and top of mind as someone who possesses you know, the requisite expertise or the knowledge to help them overcome the problem they're facing or the opportunity that they're presented with. And so while they're, they may not act immediately, um, the continued thought leadership and writing that you're putting out in the marketplace will help keep you top of mind. And ultimately, I mean, the objective is to shift that relationship from reader writer to client attorney. Now, in order to do this though, um, here's the big thing, you can't just mail it in. Um, you know, 
a few years ago, perhaps, you know, just simply putting content out there, writing an article for a trade publication or, or, you know, doing a blog, um, was enough. Uh, that was like cachet for, uh, you know, to get you noticed in the marketplace today, much more. I mean, content is everywhere. Uh, the marketplace is cluttered with it. It's very difficult to break through. So, um, you need to provide and, and what experts do, those who are perceived as experts, is to provide deep insights, you know, education, substance, thoughtfulness. In other words, wisdom. Um, this is how you build an audience out in the marketplace using your writing and your content. Um, so because if you really expect someone to give you their attention, you first need to give them your wisdom. Um, and a big part of imparting wisdom and what experts do is they blaze new ground. Um, they don't just simply, you know, for example, let's use a common example. A new case uh, is decided in the Supreme Court. And what often happens is firms rush to get the, you know, summary of the case out on their blogs and in their email newsletters. And it's kind of a summary. It's, it's, it's somewhat surface level. And it doesn't really add anything to the conversation because everyone's doing the same thing. Um, blazing new ground would be taking a totally different tack and not just talking about what happened, but really talking about the implications of what happened as it relates to the specific industry in which you focus. Um, so that's, that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about blazing new ground um, with your content. I mean, the ultimate form of content marketing and um, blazing new ground and imparting wisdom is, a, um, is, is you know, writing the book on a topic. Many lawyers have used um, um, authoring a book as the ultimate calling card when it comes to developing new business. Um, it, I won't go into it because I'm running a little short on time, but um, one of the people I profile in my book is John Trenacosta, who's a partner at um, Foley and Lardner in Detroit. And he, um, he, he, wrote, he wrote the book on the interaction of uh, an interplay between the Uniform Commercial Code and automotive supply contracts and terms and conditions. Um, it, at the nascent stages of the, um, when the tiered supply chain, automotive supply chain was developing. And he did that as a relatively young lawyer. And, and John is, um, as a result, you know, for years has been considered one of the real go-to guys in that industry when it comes to uh, um, uh, UCC uh, related litigation, the automotive industry. And, and he would, he told me, he, he explained it and I explained in my book that that was, you know, writing that book, um, on those issues was, you know, the springboard to his career, and, and still is the most important marketing element that he uh, that he has. Um, a few thoughts on tactical um, uh, tactics when it comes to executing a content marketing strategy. Uh, try to tell a story. It's always more relatable. It's, it always sinks in, and it's more memorable. Um, it's more journalistic approach to your content and your writing. So it's important to tell a story. Um, I get um, uh, hit content home runs. Um, what this means is, um, again, the, the, the way that people consume content these days um, and look for expertise online has changed to a great degree. It, it, very rarely do people simply follow a blog anymore um, for, for their content. They're going, they seek out the best content regardless of its source. And so they go to aggregator sites like JD Supra, or they go on social media and look at what their friends on LinkedIn are recommending, or they go on Google and have Google um, do that sort of uh, 
um, due diligence on what's valuable content for them. So content home runs, what I mean by that is um, if you go deep, long form content, um, very insightful, you impart wisdom, um, that's the type of content that can be found. And that can, that can serve as a um, way to draw people into your blog, into your website, and have them explore things deeper. Um, but you need that, if you're just doing surface level type content, no one's ever gonna find it. Um, you Occasionally you need to go deep and um, produce something very meaningful in order for it to be, uh, for it to be sort of the, the entryway to the rest of your, um, your bio and your website. Um, and that, as it relates to that, evergreen content, um, that goes hand in hand with, with content home runs, I think. Um, evergreen content is content that's timeless. It's oftentimes long form. It's the type of content that gets found over time. So I guess the point I'm trying to emphasize with this is, you know, there's a tendency, I think, these days, and it's driven by some of the, you know, these sites like BuzzFeed, and there's this, there's this tendency to go, um, you know, quick and try to go viral with your content and be, um, you know, these top 10 lists and, and five best ways to do this and that, that that's fine and all, but it's very difficult to compete in that. Um, and, and, and those who write that type of content, I don't think are oftentimes considered experts in their field. So this type of timeless, um, deep thinking, evergreen content is very important if you, uh, if you expect to be um, considered a, um, a uh, expert in your field um, in the marketplace of ideas. And then finally, um, what to write about. Uh, this is very similar to kind of the analysis we did earlier with how to pick a niche. But, um, you know, we oftentimes think we know what our clients want to um, read about. Um, but we don't, we don't, we're sort of guessing. We never truly know. So in order, I think the best place to be um, focusing on when it comes to your writing is the intersection of your expertise and your client's interests. And unless you ask your clients, kind of what the issues with constant communication with them and asking them what issues are affecting them, then you'll never really know. So I suggest that, you know, in the midst of your, you know, various feedback sessions with your clients and potential clients, one of the things you ask them is, you know, what issues are impacting you? If I was, you know, if I was to write an article on something, what would you, what would you like to read about? Um, oftentimes those questions are not asked, but I think they should be. And it's the best place to start when it comes to, developing a content marketing strategy around a narrow field of expertise. Um, so I know that was a, a quick spin through a very broad topic um, and uh, there's much more to learn on it, but what I really wanted to get across was um, think strategically, think entrepreneurially, pick a narrow area of special, specialization, stick with it, and then promote yourself as a thought leader via the content you produce and publish in the marketplace of ideas. And if you stick with that approach, like Scott Becker, like some of the other folks I spoke about, I think it will pay dividends over time. But it is the long game, um, but it, it can be a, a profitable and uh, interesting one to pursue. So um, that's uh, kind of a, a wrap up of um, my presentation. I know we're uh, right about 45 minutes from where we started, so I'll wrap it up there. And, Happy to answer any questions anyone has. Perfect timing, Jay. Thank you. That was great. So um, we haven't had any chat, uh, questions coming through the chat yet, but let me just tell everybody, now is the opportunity to get those questions in. So type them into chat, and if we see any come up, um, I'll ask them of Jay. We'll have, we have about 10 minutes left here, so uh, I'll 
allow for a few minutes for folks to type in questions. And um, if I don't get any, um, we're going to come back to Jay, uh, let him uh, plug his book one more time, and then uh, if he's willing, he can give folks contact info if uh, folks are shy to ask questions on the webinar. But I'm going to pause uh, for a little bit and see if we got any questions coming in. All right, got a question. Um, so Jay, uh, from Matt, we have a question. What are your suggestions for how to ask clients what they're interested in? What are some options that attorneys could use for that? Oh, sure, um, thanks for that question, Matt. Um, um, oh, sorry, specifically, we're, um, options are being typed in. <laughs> so how do you feel specifically about phone calls, in-person meetings, uh, individualized emails? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I, and I thought I, I, I was going to answer it, I think, the way you're asking it, Matt, which is sort of like tactically, how do you go about it? Or, or, or yeah. um, and, and I think, I always think the best way is, is in person. I mean, you know, I think that that is, you know, an in-person conversation. And, and in doing that, right, I mean, what, what does everyone suggest when it comes to sort of connecting and, and being, um, you know, thoughtful when it comes to client meetings, it's, it's being a really great listener, right? Asking open-ended questions and then listening to your clients. And sometimes you don't even need to ask the specific question, the conversation itself of like, what's, you know, so what's impacting you guys these days? What's keeping you up at night? Um, that, will, that will give rise to, um, you know, lots of great ideas and content when it comes to, um, you know, your writing. But I, yeah, I, I think absolutely a, um, an, an in-person, um, you know, lunch meeting, where you, you simply say, hey, look, we wanna, we wanna provide some more value in the form of you know, the content we're producing. We're producing this content in the form of a newsletter or a blog, but we wanna make sure that it's resonating and it's answering the questions and it's addressing the needs that you have. We're, you, know, you being the, the, the client, we're doing this for you. We wanna make sure that it's, it's actually being, it's something that's useful. And I think clients will appreciate that. It's like a value add that makes them think, hey, I'm getting, you know, essentially getting free legal advice in the form of your content um, and and you're actually addressing the things that we care about so I think having that conversation accomplishes two things it accomplishes it gives you ideas for writing and it also helps to you know cement you as like someone who's adding value beyond the billable hour to um, to the client relationship so um, so Jay if you would be willing so in person is your favorite option how about these other options? Do you want to rank them and talk about them? Um, yeah. Phone calls, individualized emails, uh, polls on SurveyMonkey or Twitter, um, e-newsletter. What yeah. do you think of those options? You know what? It's you could pretty much rank them in that order. I'd say phone calls number two. Uh, I'd say email number three. Um, um, yeah. Although I'm gonna I'm gonna actually. I might, I might uh, amend that now that I think about it. Because, you know, it it, sometimes it depends, right, too. You, you have to, not every client is the same. Some clients hate getting a phone call out of the blue. Some clients prefer getting an email and vice versa. So you kind of, you have to know your client. Some clients are more sort of introspective and, and like to think it through. And, and it might be more appropriate to send them an email, let them answer, you know, more thoughtfully at their own pace and, and type out a more detailed response. So I'd say, you know, kind of know your client, um, but I think what, the more personal you can get with the request, the better. We've, we've done, you know, we've tried to do like, work with clients to get like those 
you know, let's cover, you know, 500 of our clients and do a survey and try to get feedback. And you get like three responses. Um, so that sort of automated survey type stuff, I don't think that works particularly well. I think the in-person um, touch. And, and, and the, the beauty of that is if you, if you are immersed in a niche, in a narrow niche, um, that would mean that, you know, most of your clients are, again, similarly situated and facing similar problems. And so you don't need to survey every client, uh, you know, ostensibly you only need to talk to one because they're, you know, they're, they're competitors and your other, your other clients in that area are all facing the same issues. So. Thanks, Jay. Um, so I'm going to pause for a couple more minutes, um, see if anybody has any more questions. We got five minutes left here, but if no questions come in, we're going to wrap up a little early. Thanks, Matt, for your question. All right, that seems like all the action we get today, Jay. See you out, everybody. They have no questions. Oh, wait a second. I spoke too soon. All right, here's another question for you. So, Jay, uh, this is a question from Lucas. Do you see a difference between writing for a referral audience versus for clients directly, potential clients? Um, uh, in a sense, right? I, so here here's, would be two examples I would see of that. So, um, Let's say you are, um, but not, but not much. I mean, it, pretty, pretty, pretty similar. Uh, a referral audience. Let's say um, you know you're getting referrals from other attorneys, for example. You have a, you know, let's say you represent manufacturers rep, reps, and um, you know you've got this narrow little niche, and um, and you know a lot of other lawyers may not know the law in that area, so you might your main source of business might be referrals from them. Um, so you might write an article for, uh, you know, the bar journal um, in your state um, because that's obviously going to other lawyers and you want to become more well known among other lawyers. You might, you might draft it, you might draft something a little bit differently, but um, not that much differently because, I mean, I think the ultimate objective of any writing you're doing is trying to demonstrate expertise. And um, so whether you're writing it for an audience of lawyers or you're writing it for an audience of potential clients, you're going to be speaking and you're going to be, you're going to be dealing with the topics in a very similar fashion. And I think the one trap I would say, um, I wouldn't, you know, it, it, the danger of thinking about different audiences, like referral audiences versus the direct client. Um, again, to use like the, 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 if your referral sources are the lawyers example, um, you know, I think if we were writing for the lawyers, we might we might see, it might seem like there's a tendency or or a, um, a benefit to writing in a more like sophisticated fashion or more legalese or you know sort of jargon and Latin, you know that kind of stuff that uh, that you see you know lawyers sometimes use when they're when they're drafting briefs or writing um, law review articles. I, I, you know, strip all of that stuff out of. I don't care who your audience is. Try to keep it as, as, as sophisticated as possible, but as simple as possible at the same time. Those aren't, you know, I don't think those are mutually exclusive things. Um, you you want to, you want to, you want to, I think, communicate in much the same fashion, um, regardless of, of who your audience is. So, so I guess that's a long-winded say of, a way of saying maybe a little bit um, differently, um, you know, thinking about, you know, your audience, but um, not much. I mean, really what you're trying to do in any piece is, is communicate your expertise 
in a very clear fashion. Thanks, Jay. All right, I think we're going to put a bow on this bad boy at this point. I don't see any more questions coming in. People are starting to log off. So, Jay, um, let me uh, ask you one more time. Can you tell people about your book? Sure. Uh, and if they have questions uh, that they want to ask post the uh, program, how can they contact you? Sure. Well, thank you. Um, and thanks again, everyone, for spending a little time uh, here. Uh, my book, uh, One of a Kind, um, it, it's being sold by Attorney at Work, um, attorneyatwork.com. Um, you can go on their site and, and you'll find it. Um, you can also go to oneofakindlawyer.com um, and you'll be able to find a link to it, learn more about it there as well. Um, and that's also a link to, to my website. Uh, my website is hcommunications.biz.biz. Um, and if anyone has questions, um, and we'd like to learn more about anything or follow up. I'm happy to, to you know, respond to your email or have a phone call. Um, always happy to talk about these topics. Um, my email is jay at hcommunications.biz. So um, happy to, you know, um, you can reach me in many different fashions. Twitter, I respond that way. Email, you'll find my phone number on my website. Um, and uh, happy to happy to chat about any 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 and all topics legal marketing related. Thank you, Jake. You're out there doing God's work. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this will wrap up another edition of your lunch hour legal marketing webinar and podcast series. Thanks for attending, and uh, we'll see you all next month. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. Join us next time when we'll have another marketing expert and you'll have another chance to grab some lunch and pick up some great marketing tips for your law firm. And don't forget to check out all the other awesome podcasts on Legal Talk Network. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join us for the next episode covering legal marketing topics, including promoting, growing, and marketing your law firm and or practice. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.